Uh, you can turn to uh, Romans 12. We're going to be looking at Romans 12, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Uh, you know, when I think about the, the Gospels, there are several really powerful images from Christ's life on earth that really leap out at me. One is where Jesus is walking on the water in the middle of a storm. I think, oh man, I would have loved to have been on that boat and see, to see Jesus coming across the water. It was an amazing scene, or when uh, Jesus raises Lazarus, I would have loved to have been standing there when the tomb uh, was opened up, the stone was rolled out, and the guy comes out all wrapped up, you know, and seeing everyone's reaction. I would have loved to have been there at that scene. Uh, one of the scenes, though, that really I find very moving uh, is in Mark chapter 14. And in that scene, Jesus is actually not doing anything. Something's being done to him. Remember, Jesus is, is at a meal. He's just eating a meal. And a woman came in, and Mark doesn't identify who she is, but she comes in, and she breaks a bottle of perfume open, and she pours the entire bottle on Jesus' head. And I, this is just a guy's perspective, right? But I think a little perfume is, is good, but, you know, it's easy to go kind of overboard. <laughs> well, imagine, you know, just imagine the impact of that. Visually, it was uncomfortable because she was probably a single woman and she was touching a rabbi. That was, that was awkward. That was not appropriate. But then the scent just filling the entire room, everything about it was just arresting. And we learn from the story that the value of that perfume was an entire year's wage. Wow. I think about that story literally every April 15th as I'm filling out my taxes and I look at that little box that says wages, salaries, tips, you know, all your income for the year. And I think, could I, would I, would I, would I take everything that's there and in a single act of worship say, God, I give you all of this, all that I made for this year. Here is my, my act of worship. Jesus defends her and says, what she has done will be spoken about forever. We're still talking about it. The disciples, it was, it was recklessly extravagant. It was foolish. And Jesus says, no, this was worship. She was anointing my body. She was proclaiming my worth, my value. In Romans chapter 12, Paul, he turns a corner. He moves from uh, theology, 11 chapters of theology, and he turns to a practical application. And in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he synthesizes the, the, the point of the next five chapters. And he says, give yourself as an act of worship to God. Offer yourself. And then he's going to go on in the next several chapters and explain how do we do that specifically in each and every one of our relationships and our roles. But he's going to say, give yourself as an act of worship to God. I want you to read with me chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, therefore... I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul begins this section with uh, the simple word, therefore. It's marking a huge transition. Not, uh, not that the rest of it wasn't applicable, but 1 through 11 was primarily theology. Theology that he summarizes as the mercies of God. In other words, not cold, hard facts about God, but an expression of the merciful character of God, of his love for humanity. In light of the mercies of God, therefore, present yourselves as an offering. So, 
To put us back in the context, the point of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. That is, God is right. All that God does conforms to a standard which is his character, his personality. Everything about him is right and true. And so God expresses that righteousness first in judging sin. He can't just overlook sin. He has to punish sin. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All rest under the wrath of God, the punishment of God. There's none righteous. There's not even one. There's no one who seeks after God. And so in chapters 1 through 3, he pronounces uh, the, the universal condemnation of sin by God. But God loves humanity, men and women, individuals, so deeply that he's not willing to allow them to stay separated. Instead, he intervenes and he sends his son, Jesus Christ, and punishes our sin in Christ. Again, not pretending our sin never occurred, but justly punishing our sin, not in us, but in Christ, if we choose to believe. When we believe, we're placed into Christ, and God sees us in Christ, and he can say, you are right with me because Jesus is right with me. He paid the penalty for your sins. I accepted his sacrifice, and I raised him from the dead. And having raised him from the dead, I sent the Spirit So that not only can you be placed into right relationship with me, you can become like me. That is sanctification. God making us progressively, and sometimes it seems slowly, more and more and more like him in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our attitudes, in our actions. Fourth, God is righteous in history. We're confronted with the the problem of promises that he has made to the Jews, and we hear God make promises to us as Gentiles that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, but it appears that the Jews are separated. What about the Jews? Does their condition impugn the character of God? And Paul says in Romans 9 through 11, no, God is faithful to his character and to his promises. God always fulfills his word. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, nor are the gifts and calling of God ever revocable. They cannot be. God will fulfill all his promises to the Jews. Then in chapter 12, he continues this theme of the righteousness of God, but specifically he's talking about how it it is accomplished in and then through our lives in all of our relationships. So first with one another in the body of Christ, then with those who are outside of the body of Christ, with governing authorities, with, with all of these roles and relationships, how does God display or manifest his righteousness through us to a broken world. So let's read again chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, based upon God's expression of mercy and grace and kindness to you through Jesus Christ, therefore, present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Uh, this is the first imperative that occurs in 12 through 16. And Uh, What you're going to see is there's imperative after imperative. There's a lot of commands issued. The first one is this, present yourself. Hopefully you've picked up as we've gone through Romans that frequently Paul will uh, introduce a concept and then he'll kind of punch pause and he'll come back to it and he'll develop that idea. Well, he developed this or began to introduce this concept of presenting back in chapter 6 and verse 12. If we would turn back to chapter chapter 6. And verse 12, Paul wrote, Therefore, therefore, based upon the fact that you've been identified with Jesus Christ, you are different. Sin is no longer your master. You don't have to say yes to sin. You can say yes to God. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The terminology that Paul uses in chapter 6 and then later in chapter 12 is all worship terminology. It's, it's cultic terminology. Present. In the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus, this is the word that was used for bringing your offering into the temple. Present it. Put it up on the altar. Give it to the Levite. Let him slaughter the animal and spread the meat and sprinkle the blood. Present yourself to God. Make yourself an offering to God. This is your service of worship. That word for service of worship, it's actually just one word in Greek. It's the word from which we get liturgy. It's the word that applied to the the priests and the Levites when an offering was brought to them and they would have to work. On the Sabbath, they worked. They took the animal and they slaughtered the animal. And it was a long and grueling day for them. And they took the meat and they laid it on top of the offering and they, they brought wood for the fire and they built the fire and they kept the fire going and they would make incense and burn the incense and they would sing songs and they would teach the people to sing songs. They were working. It was service worship. It was work and worship. And Paul says, this is your work worship. Give yourself to God. And notice that he says in chapter 12, give your body to God. Therefore, brethren, because the mercies of God offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Now, it's interesting because he doesn't say offer your spirit or even your, your soul or your spirit and your soul in your body. They probably would have been expecting something like that because, you know, in a Roman mindset, a Greek philosophical background, they didn't necessarily think of the body as something inherently good or something that that would be a tool of worship. But in Paul's theology, you don't do anything apart from your body. Your body is is the way that you actually worship. You either give yourself, as he says in chapter 6, as a weapon of unrighteousness, or you give yourself as a weapon of righteousness. You sin with your body, or you worship with your body. And so Paul says, give your body. And what he's saying with that term is give everything that you are because your body is the house for your spirit and your soul. Give all that you are to God. Give yourself in worship to God. Hold nothing back. Look at me again in chapter 12 in verse 1. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, uh, present, put yourself up on the altar. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, not, not a dead sacrifice, not a, a single act, but a continual sacrifice. So day in and day out, moment by moment, you are giving all that you are as an acceptable sacrifice to God, a holy sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. And you know, Blake and I both use New American Standard. I, I really like New American Standard. It doesn't always get it right. Okay, no translation is perfect. And I think NAS really misses it on this verse. That word spiritual is the word from which we get logical or reasonable. So if you don't think it's blasphemy, I just cross out spiritual and in your margin write logical, reasonable. Paul's point is really clear in this passage. He's saying, based upon all that God has done for you in Christ, 
The only logical thing to do, the only reasonable thing to do is give everything to God and hold nothing back. Not that you can earn his favor, chapters 1 through 11, right? God has done it all for you in Jesus Christ. But how do you say thanks? When God has given all to you, he's given the body of his son, Jesus. He has experienced a fracture in the Godhead at the cross when his sin, his son bore sins for all people. He's given all to you. Why would you not give everything back? That's only logical. That is only reasonable. Present your body. Worship. On the other hand, don't offer yourself to the world. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this age. Do not be conformed to this world. To all that the world loves, all that the world believes in, all that the world worships. Several years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a translation. This is how he translated 12.2. He said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Paul is in these two short verses synthesizing Romans 6 through 8. When you present yourself to the world, you gradually take on the mindset or the orientation of the flesh or the world. You begin to think like the world, love what the world loves, act like the world, speak like the world. You become squeezed into the world's mold because you do worship. In its simplest terms, worship is what you devote yourself to. Where do you spend your time, your mental energy? Where where do you put your mind? Where do you put your affections? Where do you put your time? Where do you put your money? These are the things that you love and worship. And when you worship the world, you become squeezed into the world's mold. You become conformed to the world. There's a great line in a book called uh, The Source by James Michener. And um, I reread this book in anticipation of going to Israel. It's about the, the land of Israel. It's about the land. And uh, if you like Michener, you'll love this book. If you don't like Michener, you won't like this book. It's really, I mean, it's really long. Big, you know, it's a Michener book. It's like Texas or, you know, it's just boom. It's thick, but it's really fascinating because what he does in the book is uh, he, he takes a, a tell, which is an artificial mound where people built a city. And usually because there was water there, they would come along and build another city later. You know, if that city was destroyed, taken over by enemies, they'd build another. And gradually, you have this artificial mound. It looks like a hill. It's called a tell. And what Michener does is he, he takes all the layers off and then kind of rebuilds the tell. And he goes from one civilization to another. And he begins by talking about uh, pre-Canaanite and Canaanite people living in the land. And uh, there's one family he focuses on and in this family, the, the husband becomes really caught up in Canaanite worship. He, he loves the, the Canaanite god of Baal. And it's a very sensual worship. It's a very immoral worship. And he's completely caught up in it. And at one point in time, he and his wife are standing at the worship center. There's a stone there and there are, uh, there's all kinds of immoral practices going on. And the husband is, is drawn to this. And his wife looks at him and she makes this comment. If he had different gods, he would be a different man. That's really powerful. If, if he had different gods, he would be a different man. Because there's a principle in life. We become like what we worship. If you set your affections on something, it will transform your identity. 
And so Paul says, if you set your mind on the things of the flesh, you will become fleshly. You will look like the world. You will love the things of the world. And you won't be distinguishable. On the other hand, when you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you are transformed into the image of the Spirit. This is his next command. Become transformed. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into the world's mold, but instead become transformed by the renewing of your mind. You and I don't have control over every circumstance that will hit us. Things are going to happen this afternoon that we're outside the realm of your control. That's life. We, we have to become reconciled to that. But we do have control over what we put our minds on. Even when it doesn't feel like it, we choose what we set our minds on. And when we set our minds on the things of the flesh, we become like the flesh. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Progressively, slowly, gradually, God conforms us to the Spirit. So notice, this is a command. Be transformed. You have a responsibility. But it's passive. Be transformed. That is, you have a responsibility to present yourself to God, make yourself available to God, but God must change you. You cannot change yourself. Not like God wants you changed, right? We can conform ourselves to an external set of behavioral standards, but what God is after, as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, is this internal heart change where you actually love what God loves. You spontaneously and naturally love the things that God loves, So you think like God thinks and you speak like God thinks. You choose the things that God would choose. This balance we observed earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a command. That's an imperative. You have a responsibility. How does it work? Well, it only works because God is the one at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or that is to desire and do what God loves. It only happens because God is at work within you. So, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed as your mind is renewed, offering yourself continuously a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That's your only logical or reasonable act of gratitude or response of worship to God. Now, how do we do it? How do we worship God day in, day out, moment by moment, That's what the rest of 12 through 16 is about, specific applications of this principle. The first application we're going to look at today, uh, last week Blake was here and he talked about love. Love one another. Within the body of Christ, when you love one another, that is an act of worship to God. Paul says first here in verses 3 through 8, when you use the gifts that God has given to you, that is an act of worship to God. I want you to turn with me to chapter 12 and verse 3. Chapter 12, verse 3. First application point. Paul says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. The way that we worship, he says, first, offer your gifts to God. And he uses this analogy of of a body. You know, Paul sometimes talks about the church as um, the bride of Christ, her beauty, her holiness, sometimes as a a, a temple. Jesus is the cornerstone, but we are a temple, we're a building. We're fitted together, we're a place of worship. 
spirit dwelling in us. He uses this analogy of body because it displays this uh, one and yet many. And the reason he chooses this one and yet many many concept is because he's trying to help us understand that the church, by its nature, is designed to reflect the nature of God. The church is designed to reflect the Trinity. Two social institutions that God created to reflect his nature. The church and the home. In the church and the home and the Trinity, you have diversity, you also have equality, and you have hierarchy. In all three places, you have diversity, equality or unity, and hierarchy. In the Godhead, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. All are equally God. The Father is not more God than the Son, and the Son isn't more God than the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit, all God. And God is one. But God is also three. There are three persons. There is Father, Son, and Spirit, but one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And Jesus affirms that, even though he's the second member of a triune Godhead. So three persons, but one God. And there's a hierarchy of authority. The Father is over all. And he sends the Son to do his will. And the Son, having accomplished his will on the cross, ascends back to the Father. And then the Father and the Son send the Spirit so that the Spirit can glorify the Son, so the Son can glorify the Father. And then one day the Father's going to send the Son back. The Son's going to accomplish victory over all the Father's enemies. And then he's going to restore the kingdom to God the Father so that God may be one and all in all. And the church is designed to reflect that. (laughs) Wow. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for the church and he said this, praying to his father, he said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So I don't ask just for the 11 who are sitting here with me. I ask for all those who will believe through their word. That's us. That they may all be one. And that they may be one in this way, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Father, may they interact with one another in such a way that people believe that I am God in human flesh, and that we are one, and that they understand the very nature of God. That is a heavy responsibility upon the church. Paul says, You are one body. You are designed to live with one another in such a way that people see your unity, a unity that is not based upon economics. It is not based upon talent. It's not based upon race. It's not based upon anything other than the fact that you are one in Christ. And the only real hope for unity in the world is that people become one in Christ. And the church, if any other place, should reflect unity It must be here because we overlook one another's superficial differences because we see one another in Christ. And so Paul says one of the things that God has done for the church to help provide that unity is he has given you gifts of the Spirit because these gifts allow you to serve one another and these gifts help you recognize that you need one another. And so they bind you together. And you become a reflection of the very nature of God. So Paul gives three characteristics of the body. First, he says, every member of the body, that is every part, every person, every individual, is gifted by God. Read with me in chapter 12, verse 3 again. Paul says, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. 
But to think so as to have sound judgment, that is, think accurately, think wisely, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And when he says each has a measure of faith, he's not saying Bill has more faith than Bell or Bell has more faith than Bill. Okay? When they believed, Bell had a little more faith or Bill had a little more. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the moment that they believed, God measured out a measure of something that came with faith, and it is the gift of the Spirit. It is spiritual gifts. So what exactly are these gifts of the Spirit that Paul is talking about? Well, there are two words in Greek that define them. One is in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter wrote, As each one has received a gift or a charisma, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Uh, That word charisma, you can probably see the Greek word in it, is, is charis. It means a free gift. It's a manifestation of grace. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't get to pick it. God hands it to you and says, this is a gift, a free gift, freely given. And each one of you has this gift in some form or fashion, a manifestation of the grace of God in your life. Second word is a manifestation of the spirit. Our second phrase in 1 Corinthians 12 Paul wrote this, he said, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That is, it is the Spirit of God who indwells you, who brings these things with you, and they are manifestations or representations of God's freely bestowed favor upon you. So, to summarize, I define them like this. Spiritual gifts are gracious gifts, freely given from God's Spirit, bestowed on believers in Jesus Christ for the benefit of the church and the glory of God in the world. They are given to us so that we can serve others, and bring honor to God in our lives. We don't get to pick them, but every single one of you has at least one spiritual gift, one manifestation of God's grace and God's spirit in your life. Now, second question I'm often asked is this, how many gifts are there? Uh, If you look in Romans, this passage here in chapter 12, Paul lists seven gifts. In 1 Corinthians, he lists 17. In Ephesians, it's either four or five, depending on how you define your terms. And then 1 Peter, there's only two. Speaking and serving. So what is it? How many gifts are there actually? Uh, you know what? I don't know. Uh, I think that these lists are representative. I don't think they're designed to be exhaustive. Paul's just illustrating. Here's the kinds of things that God gives as gifts. Which uh, begs the question then, are gifts different from natural talents? So in other words, if I'm, I'm reading through this list on spiritual gifts and I don't see what I'm good at, could that be a spiritual gift? The answer is maybe. Okay? Uh, yes and no. Yes and no is the answer. Uh, l- l- let, me, let me illustrate this a few ways for you. Uh, gifts and, and natural talents or natural abilities are distinct. You see that illustrated if you look at maybe um, uh, the sign gifts, these, these supernatural gifts like speaking in tongues. That's not a natural talent. You've never known somebody who didn't know Jesus Christ who work, woke up one morning you know, born in the United States, raised in the United States, and they wake up one morning and they say, wow, I speak Chinese. You know, I didn't get Rosetta Stone or anything. I said, well, that's amazing. That's not how tongues works, right? It's not a natural talent. Uh, the day of Pentecost, the disciples, uh, the apostles, were filled with God's spirit, and suddenly they spoke in languages that they didn't know and had never studied before. It wasn't a natural ability, it was something very, very much supernatural. Okay, so you see the distinction there. But if you look at a spiritual gift like teaching, it's a little more difficult to distinguish. 
We've known, probably all of us, naturally gifted teachers who don't even believe in God. They use their gift of teaching in a, in a way we'd say it's either neutral. We might even say like with Stephen Hawking, he uses his gift of teaching, of understanding things and explaining things to actually blaspheme God. Right? On the other hand, we've known folks who have a natural talent to teach, and when they become believers, God takes that natural talent, he puts with it a spiritual gift of teaching, and he blesses the body of Christ in supernatural ways through this gift of teaching. So sometimes the two overlap. Third illustration. Uh, athletic ability, spiritual gift, it's not on the list. I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think athletic ability is a spiritual gift, but it can be used to honor and glorify God, just like any talent, right? Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Lin's great illustration, right? He's, 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 he's riding the pine, and then all of a sudden, uh, he gets put into the game for the Knicks, and he's just tearing it up on the court, and what does he do? Well, he turns focus and attention to God. He honors God through his talent, a physical talent. I don't think it's the spiritual gift of point guard. It's just a talent, right? And God uses it to honor himself. I'll give you one biblical illustration of this. I I love this passage. I'll explain why I, I love this in just a second. Exodus 31, the Lord is speaking. He says, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. Bezalel is the first person in the Bible about whom it is said that he was filled with the spirit. This is the first instance, Exodus 31. And it's said that he's filled with the spirit so that he can make things with his hands. He's the guy who led all of the efforts to create the utensils, and the furniture for the tabernacle so God could be worshipped. In other words, God took his natural ability and he filled him with his spirit and directed him and empowered his hands to make things out of silver and gold and wood so that God could be worshipped. In other words, I I don't think it's always really that important or critical that you know, is this a spiritual gift or a talent? What's critical is you understand all that you have And all that you are is a gift from God. Your talents, your spiritual gifts, your personality, your body, your history, your relationships, all of these things, it's a unique package God puts together so that he can honor and glorify himself through you. Therefore, Paul says, give yourself to God. Remember how Paul ended chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. That is why God has made you. And you will not understand your meaning and significance in life until you give all of yourself to God as an offering. Second characteristic. Every member is gifted. Every member is unique. Look with me again back in chapter 12 and verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function. In other words, not every member is gifted exactly alike. That means that there is not a single spiritual gift that marks you out as saved or as spiritual. You will frequently hear in churches it taught, if you don't have this gift or that gift, 
maybe you're not saved. Or if you don't have this gift or that gift, you haven't arrived spiritually. Frequently, the gift of tongues is taught as the sign. This is the litmus test. You don't have it, you're not in the club. Or you don't have it, you're not that spiritual. And Paul says, no, not everyone is gifted in the same way. Not everyone's an apostle, are they? Not everyone's an evangelist or a prophet or a teacher. Not all speak in tongues, do they? He says in 1 Corinthians. It's rhetorical. The answer is, no, they don't. The Spirit decides this is the gift you're going to get, and this is the gift you're going to get, or the gifts that you will get. The Spirit decides that because the Spirit knows you better than you know yourself and knows how you can most effectively impact other lives. And so the Spirit chooses and makes each person unique. Verse 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ According to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching. He who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality, with generosity. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, whatever you have, however God has made you, use that uniquely to the honor and glory of God. Take you back to first. Peter again, briefly, Peter says, as each one has received a special gift or a manifestation of the grace of God, employ it, not simply for your own benefit, but in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A gift is an expression of God's grace in your life, and it is manifold or literally multifaceted. It's like you individually are are part of a body of Christ that's like a a diamond. And every way that God turns it, the light hits it and and displays a different color in the spectrum. It's it's a beautiful thing, but each one is unique. God creates every person different. Another illustration for you. Um, My friend Pat Coyle and I, we've worked together for, I don't know, about 15 years. And um, Pat and I are gifted differently. Pat is an amazing administrative leader. Pat can can look at a situation. It can be a program that needs to be developed and implemented or a policy that needs to be written. And he can look at it from every conceivable angle. It's it's a remarkable thing. And he does it uh, pretty easily, naturally. I can, I can administrate, I will tell you, I can administrate, but it like sucks the entire life, blood, and energy out of my soul to have to do it. So, you know, I rely on Pat because he is uniquely gifted. It's, it's really a remarkable thing to watch how he can see every angle and how this thing will impact all different kinds of people. And he can look down the future and how would this affect people in the future? Pat can also teach. If you've ever heard Pat teach, he's actually an excellent teacher. But he doesn't wake up in the morning saying, gosh, I just can't wait to teach. I do. I love it. You know, that really fires me up. Pat's a good teacher, but he's a great administrator. He can do both, but God has uniquely put them together. I can administrate. I hate it, but I can do it. But I love to teach. You know, I just, I love it. When I think about my life, I can't imagine not getting to communicate, whether one-on-one or a small group or in front of people, that the word of God, well, God made us uniquely. My wife is another great illustration. She's an evangelist. Any conversation she gets into, it's going to move toward God. And it's an amazing thing to watch because it just kind of happens. All of a sudden, they're talking about whatever, and, and then they're talking about God. And there wasn't this weird transition. They're just, there they are, just talking about God. And I go, wow, how did you do that? 
She can't teach other people because it's just so natural, part of her. You know, I love to talk about God. I love to share the gospel. But for me, a lot of times it's, hey, we're talking about what we're eating. Now let's talk about God. I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> I just, I'm not natural. But I love to do it. And I don't feel bad about the, you know, disjunctive thing that just happened here. But God made her one way, he made me another way. And I really appreciate that about her. And I appreciate the way that God has made Pat. Because if I look at our staff team, God has put us together really well. We have very different gifts. On the other hand, sometimes there are people who have the same gift, but it works in a unique setting. We have two men here who have taught for years. Jack Lunsford has taught our Caleb class, which is our senior adult class, for decades. And our senior adults love him. They do not want to miss Jack's class. Jack is a remarkable teacher. Uh, I remember actually the first time that I ever taught at Grace Bible Church, about 20 years ago. It was a Sunday evening, and I was, I was teaching, and I remember looking out, and I saw Jack, and I, I, just, I felt totally intimidated. I thought, what do I have to say to, to Jack Lunsford? I mean, he's walked with God before, well before I was born. He knows the Bible better. He's lived through life circumstances. He's so wise. What can I say to Jack Lunsford? You know, and this is running through my head, and I'm trying to teach. At the end of the time, Jack came up to me, and he said, Brian, that was an excellent message. And he pointed out two or three things that he really appreciated. And I go, oh, thanks, Jack. Because I got to tell you, I was really intimidated when you're standing out there. I thought, what do I have to say to Jack Lunsford? Because you know, and I'm like, yeah. And he goes, he goes, wait. So Brian, I came this evening, not simply to hear you teach. I came to hear the word of God. And you taught the word of God. It's like, wow, that's deep. Uh, <laughs> And I will say, I, I now, that's one of my, my mantras that runs through my mind. Uh, when I'm preparing, finishing up on Saturdays, preparing during the week, when I come in on Sunday mornings, I remind myself multiple times through the week, you don't need to hear what I have to say. You need to hear God's Spirit speak. So God, let your Spirit speak through me. Let me not get in the way. You don't need to hear me. You don't need to hear Tony Evans, you don't need to hear Chuck Swindoll. You don't need to hear Mark Driscoll. You don't need to hear those people. You need to hear the Spirit of God speaking through his word. Okay? Jack's a phenomenal teacher and a really wise man. We have another teacher here, Don McElroy. Don has taught fourth grade Sunday school for 30 years. I think he's taken maybe one, maybe two years off. Fourth graders love him. My son loves Dr. Mack's class. He doesn't want to miss Dr. Mack's class. We have adults who want to be the helper in Dr. Mack's class because they learn something from Dr. Mack. I've seen his curriculum for fourth graders. You know, I'm like, wow, you're teaching fourth graders dispensationalism. <laughs> That's really cool. Can I sit in? You know, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Jack and Don have no desire to switch places. <laughs> Jack doesn't want to teach fourth graders and Don, I don't think, wants to teach the Caleb class. They're content where they are. Why? Because God has made them and their personalities unique. And so when he, God puts together this beautiful mix of, of gifting and talents and personality and relationships, you have a way to impact people that no one else can do. That is a beautiful thing. Every person is gifted. Every person is unique. Third, every person is necessary. If you don't discover and use your gifts, the body of Christ suffers. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul develops this concept of body, and he says, you know, the hand can't say to the foot, the foot can't say to the eye, I don't need you. Because every member is necessary. 
You can't say, I don't need that other person. That other person doesn't need me. People need you and your gifts because your personality, your talents, your web of relationships, you will touch people that no one else can in a way that no one else can. The body of Christ needs you. That is, in my opinion, the foundation for a correct self-image. Not based upon your history or your culture or your race or your physical strength or your intelligence or your beauty or your money, but who you are in Christ, gifted uniquely. At the same time, you were created intentionally by God with deficiencies. You are not complete. And you cannot be complete apart from the input of others. God made us as social creatures, okay? Many and one. Many and one. That's how God made us. So what's our application point? Simply, discover and use your gifts. Discover and use your gifts. Uh, Pat actually created a curriculum a few years ago for uh, discovering spiritual gifts and getting plugged into the body of Christ to use them. It's called Discover Your Ministry. It's offered frequently like in an adult Sunday school class, adult Bible fellowship. Sometimes we do it through home church groups. Uh, We do it sometimes as a standalone class. It's a great way to begin to figure out how am I wired? How am I gifted? How am I made? But if the class isn't meeting next week, you know what? I'd say just get busy. (laughs) Best way to find out what your gifts are. Think about what you love to do and go do it for the good of others. God gives each person a unique set of desires, things you just love to do. That's, that's from God. So think about the things you love to do. Do you love to teach? Well, find a way that you can teach for God's honor and glory, for the good of the world, the benefit of the body of Christ. Do you love having people in your home? Well, then have them in your home to encourage them in the Lord. Okay? Find the things you love to do and then do those things for the Lord. Maybe you're just in the beginning processes of figuring out uh, what your gifts are, then I'd say try something new and different that you've never done before. See how people respond to that and how it benefits them. But whatever you do, don't kick back and assume, well, I came on Sunday morning, therefore I've participated in the body of Christ. Okay? The body of Christ needs you actively using your spiritual gifts. God gave you the, the gift of his son so that his son could give you the gift of the Spirit to make you a gift to all of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your overwhelming creativity, your your matchless and immeasurable creativity, you have made each person sitting here this morning unique and special and talented and gifted. I thank you, Father, that you have not made each of us, uh, any one of us, like another In, in all of history in all of mankind, each and every person sitting here is unique and different and special and valuable. And I pray, Father, that uh, we would understand that and recognize that and be encouraged by the way that you have made us and gifted us and loved us so much that you gave your son to die for us, to send the spirit to indwell us, and to make us gifted for your honor and glory. What an incredible privilege. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.